Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And as much as we do like to keep things as lighthearted as possible, uh, we did want to go ahead and take a moment in order to send our our thoughts and prayers to Ukraine, uh, as that is breaking news on the day of the recording of this podcast. It's outside of our wheelhouse a little bit, but I think it's important in moments like this to uh, express our support for the Ukraine and for the people who will be very negatively affected by what is unfolding and uh, if you guys can find any way to support them we highly encourage you to do so there's already a lot of mutual aid efforts underway that you can find online yeah just absolutely (laughs) strange to see in our day and age truly but anyways back to form We are talking today about red winemaking. Now, if you joined us for our last... Oh, and rosé. Plus rosé, we should say. Because there's some crossovers there that really, you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Yeah. But if you were able to join us last week, we were talking about the processes behind white wine and how that is made all the way from harvest through bottling. And so we're going to basically be doing the exact same thing for red wine. Yep. Red wine is a little bit different, though, because you're having to manage just a little bit more than you are within white wine. And a lot of this comes because of the fact that you are managing the skins. The skins get to be in contact. So we're going to be talking about that uh, as well as some different elements, maybe talk about some varietals and which ones have more of those techniques employed. Uh, And I think it's going to be a great time. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Or it could be awful. (laughs) Just tune off now. Just tune off now. It's already a train. Like, like, no, the vibe, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This is now just a podcast of vibes. We just have so many vibes. We just just sip wine and give vibes. We're manifesting. Ooh, that should be our other wine podcast. (laughs) Wine and vibes. Wine and vibes. It's just us tasting wine. Yeah, and like there's just nothing but like... Slurping directly into the microphone. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like it's like half ASMR. ASMR. Yeah, there it is. But then we're also like, um, we also have nothing but lo-fi in the background, oh like God. lo-fi R&B. Yes. I, I love this idea, actually. We it's should great. do it. So when it comes to uh, red wines, mm-hmm. what are we normally seeing in order to get our first product of the wine, the must? Yeah. So your grapes are harvested, obviously. They come into the winery. And whereas with white wine, you kind of have the option of destemming and pressing or pressing with whole clusters, unless you are doing a carbonic maceration, which we will not be talking about yeah. in this episode, even though that very is very different process. Yes, it is an aspect of certain red wine making, but it's not quite general enough to put in here. And also it would probably make the episode an hour and a half long. So, <laughs> so you're welcome. So yeah, it, it will be its own episode <laughs> down the road at some point, I'm sure. Anyway, but that would really be the only scenario in the large majority of red winemaking where you would be um, doing a keeping whole... the clusters yeah, intact yeah. You know, as they go into the tank. Which does include its stems, which is interesting. But yes. what, what we need in order to get our wine first is we need to figure out how we're going to be extracting the juice that's mm-hmm. inside of the grapes. Yeah, so for destemming, just a quick thing. 
you either have the option to do it by machine or you can do it by hand. By hand tends to leave less um, detritus, I guess, or um, solids like stem solids and stuff in the must that less you might not debris. want. Debris, yes, that's yeah. that's a detritus. Who am I? Detrit- you? <laughs> no, that was, that was good. I was actually more just impressed by the vocabulary there. Um, so yeah. Uh, sorting by hand and destemming by hand will yield less of that. Typically, that's going to also drive up the price of a wine. More quality winemakers will typically be doing that by hand. In, in general terms, obviously, a lot of this comes down to the winemaker's decision. But anyway, moving on to our must. So we have our must, and now we have a couple of options on how we are going to be preparing this mm-hmm. for fermentation. Yes. So once these grapes are crushed, for red wines... Pretty universally, they are going to be fermented on the skins. Now, what the options you have with that are you can have a pre-fermentation maceration, mm-hmm. a post-fermentation maceration, or what's called an extended maceration if it's the post-fermentation maceration, or you can do both. It kind of depends on what style you're going for, the grape itself, what these macerations are meant to do. Because there are different things that are soluble at different points. If you have alcohol present Mm -hmm. in it, then it's going to extract different things than it's going to if it doesn't. So, for example, at cooler temperatures and in a more water-soluble environment, which will be the free-run, or not the free-run juice, sorry, the must, Mm because obviously grapes hold water, right? So when there's more water in that solution, you're going to be drawing out a lot more of your, like, color compounds or anthocyanins. And... Certain flavor compounds. Yeah. Um, not the full gamut, though. Tannin, some tannin will be drawn out if you do particularly a, a pre-fermentation maceration. But not nearly as much as would be extracted if it was alcohol in the solution. Exactly. Tannins tend to be more soluble in an alcoholic-heavy solution. Which will also come up later on when we're talking about cap management. Yes. So... These macerations are basically just to help you extract more flavor compounds, more aroma compounds, more color, just kind of a fuller wine. Now, now, now you mentioned it being cold. Why is it important to keep it cold? Well, because you don't want your fermentation to start. Oh, so this is all about just managing when the fermentation starts. Yeah. So you're expending energy in order to keep mm-hmm. that from happening. And also, you know, as you said, at different temperature ranges, different things will come out. So it might be just that the winemaker wants certain compounds. If it's a pre-fermentation maceration that are, you know, extracted at cooler temperatures. From what I understand, and I could be wrong on this, so don't quote me, that's probably going to be your more lighter compounds um some of your higher tone fruit notes and floral notes and mineral notes and stuff like that if they're going to be present that's macerations in a nutshell and then a post-fermentation maceration will basically do the same thing a lot of winemakers think that it kind of helps with the wine stability and it kind of helps to smooth out the tannin structure to do a post-fermentation maceration i don't know how proven that is i haven't done quite enough research to make a definitive claim there but it's kind of a widely um believed thing among winemakers that it just kind of helps smooth out some of the rough edges after a fermentation in the wine no i've heard a lot about people talking about especially pre-fermentation where they were saying it's either unnecessary or inefficient Mm -hmm. especially because it does cost so much in order to keep it that way so yeah you're holding up tank space so who are we looking at when we're looking at people who would employ that sort of thing um probably someone who is very meticulous 
again, I don't know enough about the claim for or against the pre-fermentation macerations to really say if it makes a huge difference. But I would say if someone's doing it, they're probably very invested in the wine, and it's probably going to be a more quality producer overall that's very invested in keeping their wines at a certain level. So even if it doesn't quote-unquote do anything or anything noticeable to the average drinker, it's probably still going to be a solid producer doing that. Mm. Your high-volume brands are not going to be doing these macerations. They want that tank space freed up as much as possible for the next round of whatever they're going to be putting in it. So that's kind of what, in my mind, the type of person that would be doing this maceration. That makes a lot of sense because a lot of Pinot Noir producers, uh, they Mm. will actually employ that in order to give it more delicate aromas and stronger color because it does have so little as far as pigmentation. Yes. Actually, let's get to extraction. So, you know, your fermentation starts. Um, A way that also you can stop a fermentation from starting too early is with sulfites. Pretty much anywhere where we said with white wine, sulfites will be added. That will probably be the same for red. Sulfites are just kind of added at various steps through winemaking in general. Yeah. It's kind of almost at every major step you typically will give a dosage of sulfites because sulfites will um, become neutralized, I guess, because they will bind with oxygen. That's what they are meant to do. So um, so it gives kind of like a temporary halt to whatever's yeah. going on. You're like, hey, this is where this should be. Yeah. So let's stop it. And then it will kind of burn off. And that's even true if you smell not, you know, rancid sulfites <laughs> yeah. inside of your wine um, because that's a flaw. But or if you, overly sulfured wines because that does happen occasionally. Yeah. But a lot of times you can just let that sit for a little bit and it'll mm-hmm. burn off in the glass. Yeah. But, but let's talk about extraction now. Yeah. So... When the fermentation starts, um, again, as with white wines, this can be with a wild yeast that's in the grape skins and ambient yeast in the winery, or you could inoculate against that and be using your industrial strain. So the fermentation started, right? As we're fermenting on the skins, the skins will rise to the top. Okay. So they float. And this They all float down here. They all float down here. (laughs) Pennywise was actually the one who discovered winemaking. (laughs) He established the vineyards in Burgundy. (laughs) Oh my gosh, he's even talking about how to treat the grapes before they're crushed. This makes so much sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) so, (laughs) not going off the rails this time. So basically, um your solid that forms those floating skins and seeds and what other solids might be in there are what is called your cap and oh and so like to visualize this you could say like for those of us who are coffee drinkers when you have a french press and all of that rises to the top Mm -hmm. that's kind of what it would look like inside of at least your smaller vessels were you you were with us when we went to Raynard and they actually got showed to, us yeah. uh, they had Chardonnay going and we actually got to see the cap of one of their Chardonnays. Mm-hmm. And it's not the prettiest thing in the world, but it actually smelled really good. It smelled, it smelled like, like apple, apple pie. pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're both like that was memorable. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, no, it, it it's it looks kind of like I guess you'd imagine just pulp. Yeah, really like um, a really, really thick jam. Yeah. So. This will dry out if you're not careful, and that is very undesirable 
because that can allow airborne bacteria, particularly airborne bacteria that can lead to spoilage in the wine, yeah. to get into the skins. Or, or uh, different types of acid can mm-hmm. be produced as a byproduct of these bacteria yes. that are really awful. Yeah, there's also some sulfur-producing microbes that can get in, and then you can get some out-of-control sulfur compounds in the wine, and it can be reductive. So, like, just things you don't want, right? So, so we have to figure out a way in order to keep this from staying dry. Yes. So the way that a lot of producers will do, smaller producers, I'll say, will do this is literally just you get like a steel rod with a like a paddle or like a disc at the bottom. Kind of like the thing you would use to push down espresso. Yeah, it's literally just called punching down. Uh, obviously everything needs to be food grade but um you know it's just you can just use rods oh and you can need whole teams in order to do this depending Mm -hmm. on the size of the vessel yeah and so the point of that is uh you know keep things moist and Mm -hmm. and wet Um, also if there are bad microbes drown them well and what kills germs alcohol right alcohol so you're putting in an alcoholic solution and it kills off the germs it also extracts. So on top of your macerations, this is really going to be what's going to extract most of your flavor, your color, your tannins from red wine is punching down. So let's let's do grape styles for a second. Let's say we're doing a Pinot Noir. Okay. So we have a nice light sort of flavor. Mm -hmm. It's going to have some good cherry notes to it. We do want tannin structure but it's going to be not overly tannic yeah so you're probably not going to do heavy cap management because the more you punch down the more often you do this process the more extraction is going to happen if we're doing let's say cabernet sauvignon where it's supposed to be big particularly out of california right just big bold almost jammy you're probably going to want to do a lot of punching down and cap management you might even do what's called a pump over a couple of times. And a mm. pump over is basically where, in general, uh, for red wines, you'll be fermenting. And, and for most white wines as well, outside of like parts of Burgundy, you're going to be fermenting in the big stainless steel tanks that you've probably seen in wineries. And those tanks normally have a, a spout that yeah. is meant to pump out from the bottom. So what you can do is you can pump out the juice and then go all the way down to just the cap is left in the tank. And the juice goes either into another tank or you can just put it directly back on top of it and you just pump it over. Yeah. You just do like a pour over. Yeah. Or now, a ramontage. Yes. Now, this is very extractive compared to just the punch down method. This extracts a lot of just like everything out of that cap. Now, I will say they do that a lot with Pinot Noir during the early stages just yes. because they want all of mm-hmm. the color. They yes. really don't want it to come out looking like a blush. Even if um you are going for a lighter Pinot Noir or like Gamay or one of these lighter tannin, lighter bodied grapes, you still probably will do at least one pump over kind of like you said early on into fermentation because A, you're probably at a cooler temperature so you're not at risk of drawing too much stuff out particularly astringent Mm -hmm. flavors or or off compounds but you still need to get the color and flavor profile up to where it needs to be and you also don't have as much alcohol in the solution because it's still fermenting and it's not going to yeah draw out all those tannins which actually let's talk about that right so when it comes to temperature for red wines temperature uh window for fermentation We have 20 to 32 degrees Celsius, which is approximately 68 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So 
as the fermentation goes on, I don't want to say usually, but a very real possibility is that the temperature will just rise as fermentation continues because obviously fermentation produces heat. Heat, carbon dioxide, and alcohol are the main mm-hmm. byproducts of fermentation. When it comes to what that means for red wine making, you probably want to start off cooler to draw out, you know, what needs to be drawn out at that temperature range. And then you might nice let aromatic it, compounds and yeah, color. And then you might let it go up. And the cap will also act as an insulator here. So you do need to be very careful. A lot of stainless steel tanks, though, are temperature controlled now. So you have a lot more control over this than you used to through the entire fermentation process. But um, the cap will act as an insulator. And so all these factors together will produce more heat. And more heat leads to extracting a more of like your fruit compounds. If you have those like um, kind of stemmy herbal notes that like Cabernet Sauvignon can have, that will probably be coming out more in these higher temperature ranges. Just a lot more of that lush, bold flavor. So like, you know, sugar dissolves a lot easier in hot water than in cold water, right? So it's kind of the same principle. The more increase you have in your temperature, the higher temperature ranges you're running, the more stuff in general is able to be extracted out. And as the fermentation continues as well, more alcohol is happening in the solution, right? And that tends to be where you start to get a lot of your tannins because tannins are more soluble in an alcoholic solution than in a mainly water-based solution. You're really having to manage that temperature just in order to make sure that you're not overly extracting anything. So you're throwing yourself out of balance. So with Pinot Noir... Again, most of these tanks are temperature controlled. You probably want to keep your tanks in the middle of the range during the main part of the fermentation. Then you might actually want to cool it down towards the end of the fermentation because, I mean, Pinot Noir doesn't have a lot of tannin to give to begin with. But, you know, if you're going for that lighter style of Pinot Noir, you might not want a whole lot of tannin even if there is more tannin available just for the balance of the wine overall. Cabernet Sauvignon... Maybe you you want to extract just all of that tannin that you possibly can, and you might let the fermentation run upwards of that 90 degree. Keeping it at a higher temperature for much longer, and maybe even employing both types of uh, cap management into that. Yep. And uh, these fermentations can kind of go anywhere from like five days to about two weeks, 12 days. So... That's just something to keep in mind there. And then after your fermentation's done again. Oh, oh, oh. Um, one other thing, though, uh, and and you'll have to be the one to actually talk about this. I've heard that there's well, also, know. well, then we just cut this whole section out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> we just, they don't know that we don't know. They don't know that they, they I, don't I think, ever need to I know. think they know that we I don't think know. they know. I think they know. They, they've caught on. The Poor jig is up. makers <laughs> listening to our podcast going, what? This is all wrong. This is, uh, this is every decision made in the wrong hey, way. We would love to interview you to correct us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you have notes, you can contact us at LaidbackLush <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. Give us a little follow in the in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's my plug for the day. Um, but, but just realize that if you have a thriving uh, winemaking business, then picking on us is definitely punching down. Uh, we, we're moving on. We're, no, you're done. I'm so, cutting you off. <laughs> So I've heard, especially with the pour over method or the ramontage, mm-hmm. uh, you can have it done automatically with, you know, like a yeah. sprayer It'll be at regular intervals, but you can also have it inside of a more contained thing because you can have aerobic or anaerobic pour overs. So with the aerobic, you have it, you know, spraying over top of it and it's just open air. You're allowing yeah, that oxygen. oxygen is going to get in. Yeah. So when you don't have the oxygen, though, what 
what is the reason for that? Is that just so that you can kind of preserve yeah, a little you, bit you, more? You don't want anytime you're avoiding oxygen, you're making a style of wine. Well, I won't say every time, but in the large majority of cases, you are looking to protect the primary fruit character of the wine. So um, the apparatus you're talking about is actually used in port production a lot. Oh, interesting. Because, Well, I won't say a lot. Th- these machines are incredibly expensive. So what Michael's talking about is there are these machines that basically you put your must in, and as the CO2 builds up in the tank, it pushes the juice into a tank above it. And there's a release valve when it reaches a certain pressure from the juice sitting in the upper tank, and it flows back down over the cap in the lower tank. So for port, this is used because, and sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but port, you have a very, very narrow window to extract all of that rich fruit you need, if you're particularly if you're doing a ruby port, to stand up to the sugar and the alcohol that's going to be added. Mm. Because port is stopped prematurely. You don't sweeten port, or at least you're not supposed to. Legally, you're not supposed to. And so you're having to get all these compounds out before you use up too much sugar, and you can't have a sweet wine after you fortify. Mm. So this method, because this pour-over method is so extractive, you're protecting the fruit from oxidation. You want to keep, particularly, again, for ruby port, it's all about that bright cherry chocolatey yeah but um that will come more from barrel you want all these primary aromas kept intact and you need to extract as much color as much tannin as much everything as you possibly can so that's why that would be used that apparatus interesting i need to do more research into what styles of red wine would actually employ that but it sounds very expensive it is again these machines they're they're pricey they are very pricey um i don't know outside of port where it's widely used i'm sure probably in like Australia or something where they make these big, humongously bold Shiraz wines, probably places like that, or maybe, you know, um, Napa or something like that. Okay. So, so now that we have this must and it's, it's fermented, where are we going from here? So uh, again, uh, you can have a post fermentation maceration. We already covered all that. Then you will press your wine. If you're doing a maceration, obviously the pressing happens after the maceration. And as with white wines, you have your free-run juice, and then you have your press juice. And you have, in red wine making press fractions. You can have this in white wine making as well, but overall, it's going to be much more important to red wines. Press fractions are basically where, um, if you're familiar with like how scotch and other whiskeys are made, you know that there's a point where between your heads and your tails and the heart of what you're making, where even within that, you will stop at a certain point depending on what you're going for. If you have no idea what Gabe is talking about right now, you can actually watch our whiskey episode. Or listen. Or listen. Yeah, because we don't have the option of watching. Yeah, yeah. You can stare at a screen yeah. while you listen. Mm-hmm. Just a um, blank black <laughs> screen so you can watch your own Well, reflection. it has our logo on it. Uh, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, do that while you're watching Critical Role or something and just ignore (laughs) their audio. Yeah. But yeah, so this process for press fractions is basically where you cut off the press, uh, literally fractions at certain points based off of the tannins that are coming out, how um, 
thin, quote unquote, because the more you press, the worse it's going to get overall yeah. for wine making purposes. Another example would be the way that olive oil is extracted, where mm-hmm. you have different levels, different compound profiles, I guess we could call it, yeah, that are coming out at different stages of the pressing. Exactly. So what these do, and it's basically the same thing for white wines, if you are going to blend back in, is these are primarily used as a blending tool. You can make a standalone wine from these fractions sometimes. Some winemakers do that. But overall, it's used for adjustments for the free-run juice. If it's not tannic enough or if it doesn't have enough color or whatever, you might blend some of this back into the final product. Or not even the final product. You might blend some of it in before it starts aging. You could do it after. You could age it separately and see what happens to it and then do blending there. But that's what your press fractions are going to be for. for and that'll, wine. that'll be all according to the winemaker's experience exactly. and taste. Yeah, I mean, as with white wine, we said it in that episode, so many of these practices are, there's some leeway in what you can do with them because every winemaker is different and they're all going for a different thing because each of them has a different taste that they're going for. Speaking of lees. Yes, we do still have our lees. Lees are not really a thing in red winemaking. You kind of just want them gone as soon as you can there is no real lees stirring and the overwhelming majority of red wines you just don't you don't really get anything out of it there's really no cross a single red wine that employed yeah lees agent it's just it's such a delicate aroma that it really i don't know what purpose it would serve in a red wine or at least most red wines i don't really see what it would serve also, as with white wines, we talked about malolactic fermentation. I will not go into what that is here. You can listen to that episode for that. But just know, pretty much all reds will undergo MLF or malolactic conversion if we want to be technical about it. So now that we have this type of uh, wine, we have a profile, um, we have our red. We know that this is not the final step in order mm-hmm. to make this not palatable, but ready for consumption. Yeah. Uh, so now we have some different things that will be done in order to adjust or allow the flavors to develop. Yeah. What would you say is one of the first things that we would need to do? You need to do your aging if you're going to do an aging regimen. If you're making a very early style, like a, a Hoven wine mm-hmm. out of Spain, Hoven can see up to, what was it, 12 months, I believe, in barrel, but you might not put it in barrel at all. You might just keep it in... An inert vessel, which would be a stainless steel tank, maybe a concrete egg. The stainless steel is going to be much, much more popular currently than the concrete eggs are. Yeah. But that's going to make a wine that's going to be very early drinking in style. It's going to retain all of those primary fruit characteristics. It's going to be very fresh, very approachable at a young age for a red. And it's going to be a little simpler than, you know, a a barrel aged red will be, uh, obviously, just kind of by the nature of what it is. But that's not a bad thing. No, sometimes you don't have something that can stand up to the heavy oaking, or maybe it's or maybe you just want to sip on something, you don't want to have to deal with huge tannins from a Shiraz or something. Yeah. So that's one method of aging. And these aging requirements are probably going to be a couple of months again, as with white wine, it needs to kind of, you know, integrate into itself. It's like soup needs to meld together before it's ready to drink um, after you're pressing and you're malolactic and all that. Now, what reds are probably more known for is the oak regimen that Mm -hmm. they typically go under. Which vary from style uh, and, you know, this different varietals typically will get very different treatment. 
mm-hmm. depending on this. And then there's also just industry taste that yeah. is changing. So we talked last episode a lot about what oak does to a wine. Um, as a very simple overview, French and American oak are your primary kinds of oak. American oak tends to impart uh, coconutty flavors. It tends to be a little more harsh than French oak which imparts more of your baking spice profile, maybe some woody cedar notes. I mean, you're going to get woody notes from both of them. The size of the barrel, the larger the barrel, the less it will impact the wine because, again, surface area of the wine that is actually in contact with that barrel is less the larger the barrel is. So smaller barrels, more. And that's typically what you see with wines that are supposed to be in that big, bombastic, huge Napa Valley style Cabernet Sauvignon or the really uh, intense Bordeaux out of the left bank. You're going to see a lot of smaller new oak barrels. We didn't go into the age of oak. No, we did not. Oak is measured in fills. And what a fill is, is basically um, what you use that barrel for, for that vintage. And what I mean by that is... If you have a new barrel, new oak, no wine has ever been stored or done anything in there before. It's a new barrel. Second fill is it has had one fill previous, the new fill. Third is it's already undergone. The second, it's on its third fill. Just think however many times you're filling it up, that is the fill of the barrel. Anytime it's housed and aged a wine. Yes. And the more fills a barrel undergoes, the more neutral the barrel becomes in its flavor profile that it will impart to the wine because you can think of it as um like a tea bag yeah if you reuse a tea bag you'll still get some flavor on the second go around but it won't be as much as it was on the first one and then if you do it again you'll get even less barrels work on the same principle the wine will leach out some of those compounds which could be a strategic yeah. uh, thing for you so like that, if you that's, want that's that, good because it yeah. gives you more control over how much of that spice profile so I, the wine. I want my big bombastic cabernet sauvignon i'm mm-hmm. gonna grab a new yeah. oak as opposed to maybe i wanted pinot noir and it's going to be a lot more you know delicate and mm-hmm. i'm not wanting it to be overpowered by that spice yeah i'm gonna want something that's maybe on its second or third or maybe even want something older. Um, most winemakers don't really go past a third fill if they're looking for a flavor. But as we mentioned, sometimes barrels are used solely for the microoxygenation mm-hmm. that they still will have regardless of whatever fill they're on. So you might use a fourth or a fifth fill barrel, just a very old barrel. It doesn't impart anything in and of itself. It just allows that oxygenation to... Soften those tannins. Soften tannins. Um, It will give some, you can still kind of taste a little bit of a spice character normally on these older barrels, but it's super subtle. It's it's super subtle and it's very integrated into the fruit because the oxygen is also interplaying with those flavor and aroma compounds. Um, You'll also might notice that the fruit might taste like a little bit more um, dried, less fresh Mm -hmm. if it's been in a barrel, uh, depending obviously on how long uh, that takes years for that to become very noticeable but yeah so not every barrel is used for spice but again in these huge like shiraz cabernet sauvignon malbec you're probably looking for that spice profile so we have now these profiles that have been able to be developed inside of our our new or our old or Mm -hmm. our french or our american oak now we have these things together and those are going to provide us with the tools for being able to blend yeah There's different compound and flavor profiles, and then your winemaker is going to start to really make the final decisions on what the profile of the finished product Mm -hmm. is going to be. So 
let's look at Bordeaux, for example. Bordeaux is like the red blend region of the world, right? When you have all these different ages of barrels, because new oak is falling out of favor globally right now, people are kind of burnt out on these like really highly extracted, super intense new oak regimens. Mm, specifically American new oak. Yeah, Spain used to be still a very large user of American oak. That's on the decline as well. They're switching to French and a lot of producers in Spain. But this super heavy oak style is going out of favor a little bit. Some winemakers still, though, want the punch that that new oak will have, but maybe they soften that by blending it with a second or third fill barrel as well. It's more than one barrel. Um, so but you're, you're blending stock with a certain ratio of like new oak to older oak, or maybe you're doing new oak with stainless steel age. That's a little bit more uncommon because what happens in barrel might be a little jarring next to something that didn't undergo that process. But you can blend across these ages. Again, you can blend across types of aging material, and that will give the winemaker a lot more control over the precise nature of that final wine. So they're able to just have that control. They can feature that big bombastic oak flavor while also having those more delicate notes yeah. on display. Yeah, it won't be overwhelming because like a lot of, that's what people are getting burnt out on is a lot of people are just like, it's just too much. It got to be too much. Well, and especially if you're saying that you can have with those older, more used oak barrels, more integration between the spice and the uh, fruit profiles, yeah. then having that combination of here's spice and mm -hmm. here's fruit and then here's also integrated spice and fruit notes, yeah. it can increase that complexity. And a very attractive way yeah if we're going to talk about it compared to music let's say it's like you have your high your low but you, you still need the mid yeah you can't ignore that people will pay most attention to your bass and your high tone or your high pitches overall but the mid if you don't have it it sounds hollow yeah you know, I would. Ooh, and in that metaphor, I would definitely say oxygen, oxygen, cut that out. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not cut that out, but, you know, cut that out. Oxygenization. I still fumbled over it. Why is that so oxygen? <laughs> and that was entirely without any rum. Uh, the oxygen influence would definitely be represented by reverb. Yeah. Yeah. Reverb chorus. That's fascinating. You still need to have all of those elements together in order to produce the things that are now coming out. Yeah. You also, outside of just um, your aging profiles and aging regimen, you have your varietals. So back to Bordeaux. The big two grapes in Bordeaux are Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Cabernet Sauvignon on its own, high acid, high tannin, in the cooler climate relative to California. Bordeaux is a moderate climate overall. The wines are going to be a little bit more restrained on their fruit profile, so you're not going to be able to get that big jammy flavor in most vintages that you'll be able to get out of California unless it's a like particularly hot year in Bordeaux. And you're not going to have nearly as many sugars inside of it. Exactly. So you're not going to get this big, bold flavor profile that you would expect if you're used to California-style Cabernet Sauvignon. What Merlot does is Merlot tends to be more fleshy. Um, because of the structure of Cabernet Sauvignon, it can be a rather thin wine um, in terms of body and palate because the tannins are going to be drying and the high acid is going to keep the body lighter. So Cabernet Sauvignon, it, it can get to higher alcohol, but if it's not getting to higher alcohol, again, because of the climate, it's just going to be a little thinner. 
So Merlot tends to be a higher alcohol grape. It tends to have a bigger, fleshier fruit profile, and it doesn't have a huge spike in tannin and acid like Cabernet Sauvignon does. But again, if we want to talk about the middle range, it helps fill out those those middle parts that, so that need it, a bit more structure. So it's a bit softer, but it yeah. has the alcohol content that you might need, especially for body, mm-hmm. in order to balance out the resulting blend. Exactly. So that's why red blends are so popular, is it's another way to adjust for the shortcomings of a grape. And it's absolutely delicious at <laughs> yes. Bordeaux. And there's red blends coming out of everywhere with all sorts of different grapes. Um, But that's a really good example. Yeah, that's kind of the er example of your red blending and why you would choose to blend across grape varietals. So that's blending. Obviously, as I said earlier, uh, this might be where you introduce your press fractions back in to make those final adjustments to the wine. Real fine tuning. Yes. And then... Again, as with white wines, we have our clarification and our stabilizations. Got to get rid of that sediment. Yes. Confuses people. Yeah. um, Unfiltered wines are kind of trendy right now due to natural winemaking and whatnot. I personally am an advocate for less invasive filtering. But again, if you're not filtering down to the microbiological level, you still risk some spoilage. Mm -hmm. If you're not careful, you have to be very careful in the winery to prevent that from happening. But with red wines, you probably are going to just have a little bit more clarification just for the sediment aspect than you would with white wines. But enough time in the bottle for a red. Again, polymerization of your tannins happens and other compounds, and they will fall out of solution if they're Mm -hmm. in there for long enough, and that will cause a sediment deposit. If it's not filtered a whole lot, it's natural. It's not going to harm you. It's nothing that wasn't in the wine to begin with. You know, obviously, for your really mass market brands, they are going to be filtering down to the microbiological level. They're it going needs to be, be shelf stable for as long as possible with yeah. these guys. You're going to undergo fining here, uh, just as you would with white wines. I did want to touch on, I forgot to mention how tartrates are stabilized in the last episode. Oh, yeah. Um, what you do is so tartrates come out of solution, they solidify and crystallize at cooler temperatures. So, what you do is you actually bring the wine down to a very cold temperature. You let them crystallize, and you basically just filter them out that way. Seems simple enough. Yeah, and it just prevents the tartrates from being in there to begin with, and then they normally get sent off to be turned into tartaric or uh, cream of tartar. Last point for stabilization is obviously your final dose of sulfites before the wine is bottled and packaged and sent off. Just simply for that little bit of stabilization. Yeah. And again, sulfite-free wines are becoming very popular sulfites are used for a reason mm-hmm. just be aware of that they'll typically burn off or you can filter them out if yeah. it really is trouble if you can have uh dried fruit yeah you don't have a, a sulfur yeah sensitivity um it, but some people just like the profile of these cleaner well quote-unquote cleaner wines and that's fine I, I don't i don't judge either way just uh know that normally for most conventional wines there will be a final dose of sulfites added here Okay, so now we have this bottled. What are some of the things that we're going to see as far as our quality Mm -hmm. differences between our bottled red wines? Well, so for both cheap and quality for red wines, overall, they're going to be dry. The only exception I can think of is, again, here in the United States, we really like our sweet stuff. Sweet table blends, red table blends, are kind of popular. Like, a lot of people do 
buy them and they're typically not sweet they're off dry Mm. Um, but they're advertised as quote-unquote sweet table reds yeah and they'll be like semi-sweet in some cases um a lot of them are actually frizzantes Mm -hmm. i personally really cannot tolerate the style i i try not to be snobby about things but that is one thing i I just if you ever see me at a party please do not give me a sweet table red i will not like it you don't you don't want my my il duca imperial no, 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 I'm no, good. None of that. I'm good. A nice frizzante that we say is from Italy, but is actually from California. Mm, the grapes are from Italy, right? Mm, no, they don't even they don't even pull the import trick. No. Oh, that's sad. Well, okay. Either way, in general, red wines they're going to be fermented to full dryness, not any residual sugar. So that out of the way, cheaper wines, as with white wines probably going to come from vineyards that have a lot higher yields than quality wines less stringent site selection again i think lodi in california does a lot of just mass red grape growing for the entire state and a lot of them won't even have a location or or they'll say california yeah or or yeah. you know something they're, they're just sourcing it from anywhere exactly which yeah. there are some decent quality wines that oh. are made that way because they have the ability to blend. Yeah, well, someone, so many things. Yeah, I had a rosé blend. It was um, Grenache, uh, Syrah, and Merlot. I want to say, and that was a California state appellation. Yeah, and what they did is they they found the best Grenache, the best Merlot, and they have to label it as that. But it was still a very high quality wine. But overall, if you see a state on a label and no further clarification that's probably not a good indicator of the site selection for that yeah. wine. so just just be aware of that yeah um but you're probably going to have and this is something for white wines as well i forgot to mention industrial yeast i don't know of any mass producer that will use a wild yeast yeah. it's just too much risk in off flavors developing for what they're going for yeah because with your more expensive wines they really are looking at terroir being mm-hmm. expressed and they really are looking for the uniqueness of a vintage to be what stands out and a lot of them will cultivate their yeast as well they'll get Precisely. they'll get the right yeast that don't produce off flavors and inoculate with that like it's still indigenous but it's just um it's cultivated yeah it's cultivated yeah. meanwhile your larger producers they're not looking for an expression of an area they mm-hmm. are looking for consistency of a product exactly as with white wines, chemical adjustments are very common in these wines. And they can be awful. Yeah, they can be awful. Tannins, artif- well, not artificial tannins. They do actually come from natural sources, but tannins are added a lot of times to particularly grapes that are supposed to be highly tannic, but didn't get ripe enough to have the tannic profile that it needs to have, and it doesn't taste very good. Um, another really big one for red wines in particular is acidification. Mm-hmm. Because red grapes tend to overall grow and do better in hotter climates, that means your acid levels are just going to be lower. That's part of how grape physiology works. Yeah, as it matures, as it ripens, you get more sugars and, and less, less acids. acids. Yes. So if you need that acid intact, but your grapes got too ripe because you don't really particularly care about your harvest schedule, you're just buying from a bulk grape grower, then you will acidify your wine most likely you probably won't notice acidification but just know that this is something that's very common for red wines mass market red wines if you would like to know more about how these decisions are made you can go to our wine tasting episode i believe 
where we talk about balance mm-hmm. a lot about yeah. how these things happen. Because if you have too many tannins, not enough acid, it's going to literally just dry you out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to taste horrible. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be awful. So there, there are reasons why these decisions are being made. Yeah. And I, to be clear, I don't say this as like it's a bad thing to be making all these adjustments inherently. But there's a difference between a quality winemaker trying to make adjustments for maybe a bad vintage and trying to just create the most homogenized, precisely non-terroir driven, just like whatever wine in the world to sell to people who don't who who don't better yeah who don't know better or who are buying in bulk for like a party or something like that exactly which brings us to probably one of the most uh unromantic decisions that can be made for a wine in my opinion and that's the use of oak chips or powder yeah so or staves or staves um i think we covered this last time briefly these are literally like oak chips like minced up wood pulp (laughs) <laughs> oh chips like what you would use for smoking yeah meats. that you steep in like a tea bag essentially in the wine it's not it doesn't taste good i've never had a wine where i could tell that it was oak staves chips powder whatever and enjoyed it yeah i, I will same. say that it, it just it doesn't taste right if you know what a well integrated oak tastes like another thing from a fermentation standpoint is usually there is less extraction happening from cap management because again at these really high volume producer levels, your tank space, it is time is money. You want that stuff in for as short of an amount of time as you possibly can get it. Yeah. So you're not going to be spending a whole lot of time managing your cap. You might maybe do some mechanized pour overs or something, or um, a lot of them, if you want a really extracted style, there is one way you can do that. They have automated paddles that can go into the tank and just constantly go, which will probably over extract. And these vessels that they're using for this style of fermentation are so large that you cannot even attempt to do a punch down. When we say vat, we mean a a vat, like an industrial vat. Like like, Like the Joker fell into it, and and that's why he came out the way he did. (laughs) Oh, gosh. He tasted that that cheap uh, Lodi Lodi Zinfandel and said, my father. My father father was a winemaker. Was a winemaker. (laughs) But a bad one. That's his whole backstory right there. It just stops. He just stops talking and starts killing. <laughs> One time I gave him a nice Romane Conti and he spat it in my face. And put barefoot on the table. And put barefoot on the table. <laughs> Yellow tail. Yeah, oh, God. Anyway, enough ripping on these brands. Uh, yeah, yeah. Going back to so mass market I wines. mean, well, everybody's talking about how 2022 is like the end of their villain arc like they're 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 starting their villain arc in 2022 (laughs) yeah just just drink some yellowtail and you will be in the villain headspace for sure there it is so um lower tannins in these wines again from typically less cap management and extraction being utilized unless again you have these constant paddles going so kind of to wrap out our cheap wines uh they typically will be a lighter easier drinking style Anytime yeah. you undergo oak or any extensive aging or anything, that's money. Yeah. That is a production cost, and that will drive up just inherently the cost of any wine. And if you're trying to make a $10 wine, you're probably not going to do that. Exactly. Which means that these are also typically going to not stand up to aging whatsoever. Oh, so no, no. You no. want to go ahead and drink these yeah. when you buy them. Uh, consume within like two to three months, I would mm-hmm. say. And, you know... Uh, 
to be fair to these wines, uh, maybe, you know, not the cupcakes of the world, but back to our Hovens from Spain, right? Mm -hmm. Those wines are typically very cheap, very affordable, but, you know, still have enough winemaking going into it for still a very clean, early drinking, fresh, fruity style. Mm -hmm. There's a place for that. that exactly. I, I can't knock this style. I enjoy that style a lot. Me um, too. I, not everybody wants to constantly be drinking just the biggest, boldest red you can well, possibly especially get your hands on. if it's short notice and you don't feel like popping open a $50 bottle of wine. Yeah. Grab yourself a Spanish wine. Exactly. You know. So um, going to our quality producers, though, and what they'll probably be doing, again, their yields will be a lot more controlled, lower in a lot of cases, better site selection. Hopefully, they're kind of sourcing from their own vineyard holdings overall. You're going to have longer macerations. Uh, something I forgot to put in for our cheap wines. Macerations, little to none if yeah. they do happen. Time um, is money. Yes. Uh, so maceration is going to be a lot more common in quality wines better cat management more fitted to the style of wine that's being produced your tannin profile will be more in alignment with what is typical for that varietal and it will hopefully be in balance with the rest of the wine itself exactly yes if it's oaked you have new oak oak barrels are expensive particularly new oak barrels so Yes, new oak is kind of falling out of favor, but if you do see something advertising that it used new oak, obviously within a certain price point, or above a certain price point, I'll say, that's probably a, a quality wine. Because again, it costs money to have new oak barrels. Well, and especially wine. if it can stand up to new oak, that's that's also going to tell you about the quality. Yes. And again, uh, all the blending that we talked about across grapes, across blending ages or uh, fill, barrel fills and whatnot, all very common in quality wines. The profile of these wines overall, probably going to be more dense, more concentrated, more complex, usually more age-worthy if the conditions are met within the grapes. So we talked last time about acid and sugar being two really big ones in white wines. Well, enough sugar. Sugar in like dessert wine quantities. Kind of that middle range of like off dry to um, semi-sweet. Sugar can actually make it easier for microbiological spoilage in white wines. Um, I forgot to mention that last time. So that would be a reason why you might sterile filter a wine like that uh, is to prevent, if it is an off dry style, to prevent spoilage from happening. Mm -hmm. But Sugar in like dessert style quantities does act as a preservative because it's too much for bacteria and yeast to handle. Too much of a good thing. Yes. With red wine, your tannin and your acid are going to be, and your alcohol, because uh, red wines typically, again, they tend to come from hotter climates. So that means usually higher alcohol and they're fermented to full dryness. So yeah, more alcohol usually. So the alcohol is stabilizing it. Yeah. So that's a preservative. Your tannins are a preservative and your acid is a preservative. So mm. uh, Cabernet Sauvignon or Cab Blend has the tannin, the acidity. And if it came from a hot enough climate and got ripe enough, it has the alcohol to age. Now, again, as we said in the last episode, even if you get a wine that meets all these profiles or checks all these boxes, I would not lay it down for more than like three years. Even three years is kind of pushing it. But if a wine is made to age, red wines in particular can just go for decades if, yeah. if they're built, quote unquote, to withstand that. Which and and red wines overall do age better than white wines. Yeah. And you can solve that with a simple uh, ask of your wine attendant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, your sommelier in particular should have that sort of knowledge. Yeah. Or your WSET level three certified individual. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, imagine having one of those on hand. That would yeah. be so, so convenient. That would be just remarkably convenient to be able to just text that person. Uh, or to message them at Laid Back Lush. <laughs> <laughs> Third I, plug. I cannot guarantee that I will answer everybody's will this age question. No, I, I love this idea. Actually, that's gonna be that's gonna be how it happens. Well, then you're gonna be answering some of those DMs. Sure, sure, sure. I I can definitely uh, say that I'm answering those. Um, <laughs> So to uh, close out the episode, we are going to end on our rosé wines. Yeah. So and it it really is um, basically just as simple as you can say. Everything is the same as red except for how you get the color. Precisely. So instead of having the. And also rosés in general do not see extended aging. They're normally early drinking release ASAP wines. Yeah. Yeah. So you have your must from these red grapes. Basically, all you're doing is taking out the debris, you're taking out the skins Mm -hmm. after it's extracted a little bit of color, as well as some of those aromatic compounds from from the skins in order to give you those kind of more watermelon, strawberry notes. Yeah, so that's the the maceration method, which is kind of the overwhelming, from my understanding, overwhelming um, majority of of rosés out there. Yeah. Because this also gives you the most rosé color out of the three methods. Well, uh, I won't say that. Um, out of the two proper methods. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right. right. Um, because there is another method. Yeah. Uh, and macerations can extend into the start of fermentation, but if they do, they typically will not be on the skins for the entire time. The main takeaway is limited skin contact, yes, but limited, that is done through yes. a couple of different methods. Yeah. Uh, so short maceration is one way to get a rosé. Another way is through direct pressing where you just press the grapes and get the free run juice off of that and obviously you have to have grapes with thick enough skins i'll say to give color from this but you can get a little bit of color it will still make a rosé wine it will not be a blanc de noir because a blanc de noir has no color in it yeah the white of blacks yes um but this direct that's a direct translation yes uh but this direct pressing style will give you a little color. These tend to be very lightly colored rosés. They are probably going to be your lightest style of rosé. Very light, crisp, refreshing, summer kind of style rosé all day drinking. Now we have uh, the wrong method. <laughs> Which I may um, or may have not done accidentally a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm kind of joking about that, but these wines do have a reputation of being very low quality. So we're talking about blending, yeah, which is uh, blending a white and a red together to get a rosé color. This is illegal in the EU, with the exception of champagne. Champagne has a very complex blending reputation. Some of these houses can have dozens, if sometimes maybe even upwards of like 100 different wines in different vessels, oak, steel, blah, 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 aging at different times that they blend together to create kind of like the perfect wine. These wines, you are allowed to blend red and white grapes together, which are going to be uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier for your red grapes, Chardonnay for your white grape, to make a rosé in Champagne. That is the only region where that's legal. In the New World, it depends on the region if it's legal or Mm -hmm. not. It's legal in most places as far as I know. But if it is a rosé made from blending, it's probably not very good. Yeah. It's probably a... um, 
again, a very uh, either mass market or just a we don't know what else to do with these wines, and so we'll just make a rosé. People like rosé, right? Skinny girl wine, that sort of thing. Which is a brand, not I'm not saying anything about <laughs> Yeah, that that's a literal brand, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a brand. I'm not saying anything about individuals with their choices. Yes. Yeah. So Although if the phrase rose all day has unironically left your mouth at any point in your life, I'm not sure I respect you. <laughs> I'm slowly raising my hand. <laughs> I do not respect you as my co host anymore. <laughs> this I'm is doing this ended. podcast solo from now on. You're you're out. I mean not all day, just a little bit with brunch mimosas or brunch okay how dare you what if i don't want the bubbles this time you yeah i know you <laughs> captain bubbles yeah, don't want the yeah. bubbles no, yeah I that, definitely want the it'll bubbles. be a cold day in hell when that happens <laughs> yeah, precisely <laughs> <laughs> so uh and that concludes our episode on red wine making yes if you have questions, please feel free to DM us. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, you know the places. You know the drill. You know the drill. I mentioned them now three times. Four. Four. Well, I mean, I inferred the places. I didn't actually say them this time. Mm, okay. Okay. There's I a see. difference. I see. Yeah. I know. I don't want to argue syntax or anything like that. But <laughs> you are wrong. No. <laughs> You're definitely out. All right, guys. So um, next episode, Michael will not be here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Gabe asking himself questions and then answering yeah, them. A- answering in a silly voice. Yeah, oh, God. It's your approximation of me. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael, and I really like to talk in this register whenever I start an episode. But I, it slowly fades away as the episode goes yep. along. Well, and that's the thing. I'm trying to, to elocute in a more radio-appropriate way, but it doesn't mm. It doesn't always work. Yeah, we're not professionals. We're not <laughs> professionals at all, but but we're trying. We're, we're trying. trying. Uh, so thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, again, our thoughts and prayers do go out to Ukraine. Yes. And we will see you guys in the next episode, which will be on... Yeah, we haven't talked about <laughs> this. We haven't talked about it. Um, might be taking a field trip. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Field trips, uh, maybe a spirit. Who? The world is full of possibilities. The world of wine, beer, and spirits is literally one of the largest markets in the world. So we have options. We have options. Yeah. So if you yeah. have any uh, suggestions, you know the drill. You know the drill. So thank you guys again so much. I've been Michael. Hi, I've been Gabe. <laughs> we're, n- we're not using actual glasses. No, these are water glasses. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>